Yeah, if you, if you go see a movie, first thing everyone asks is, at the Alamo, right? The Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we walk into the Alamo, the coolest place in town, and uh, you walk in, there's a big gift shop. Uh, there's immediately some like socio-political calls to buy some shit for. I don't know if you saw that. No, I didn't see that. Um, I'm not even going to say what it is. I'm okay. just going to let it ride. I'm just going to be like, you know, saw that. I see you, Alamo. Um, okay. Uh, a bunch of DVDs and stuff, like, you know, cool, yeah, old school horror stuff. And uh, and what else was in there? Was there Barbie stuff to buy? Because there were Barbie people in there. Yeah, there was Barbie stuff to buy. Barbie people. That was a unexpected as, surprise. Mm-hmm, there were some girls yeah. dressed up, like, really, really hyped for it. Yeah, that was nice. We were uh, we were going for the depression, so we went for Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah, two totally different types of people there: Oppenheimer or Barbie people. But <laughs> our bartender downstairs said she wanted to see both of them. Oh, really? Yeah. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe Barbie would have lightened it up for us. Um, so we get in there, and it's nice. Uh, seats are kind of they have the little electronic seat recline. Which is like, dude, I don't know why. When I picture going to the movies, I'm still stuck at like eight years old, Cinema 8, bubble gum all over the floor, you know, like rackety old plastic seats that your cup might fall through in the middle of the movie. Yeah. Um, fighting over armrests. Yeah. Everything's real creaky. Yeah. Definitely fighting over armrests. Yeah. These are like, this is like a luxury theater. <laughs> but, the, but the tickets were only 10 bucks, you said, right? You yeah. Bought, yeah. I guess it, it was, was a, a date. Steve bought my tickets. Yeah. But it was a matinee. So. Maybe that's a normal movie price True. these days. Well, what was not normal was we got a bowl of popcorn, a milkshake, <laughs> and a soda, a cup, of, just a small glass of soda, and that was thirty-four fucking dollars. Uh, which, of course, I didn't catch until after I was just being like, "Oh, I have a nice little milkshake," and it was like, "Oh, fifteen dollars shake." Okay, yeah. <laughs> were the prices in the menu? I didn't look because I'm an idiot. Okay. It was dark in there. That's how they get you. It's dark. You got that yeah. little light right by your chair that you're supposed to. Yeah, but for people who like really love movies. Um, also, I noticed when I was buying the tickets, they had a sensory, a sensory friendly um, movie. What? Option. Like what? In what I way? I have no idea. I, I meant to ask them while I was there. Like I you're touching things it. while you watch the movie? Like. No, I think it's probably like even me. Um, I have like a little bit of sensory issues, like with certain kind of sounds. They probably don't play really loud sounds mm. in the sensory thing. I would guess if you got like a sensitivity or something. Yeah, actually, did you notice that in this movie that it was like they played like the extremely suspenseful um, build-up music at like strange times? I don't. I guess that was uh, it's Christopher Nolan. You know, okay. just being a like, is that what you're talking about? Like just the what the score, like the composition was just like playing the suspenseful stuff and then being absolutely quiet in other places. Well, yeah, I mean, just people doing that doesn't bother me, but it was just like the times when it, it was, it, it was like, uh, he's reading an email and it's building up this suspense for <laughs> this guy, like reading a letter about how he needs to renew his car registration or like something like that. It was just like, why is this so suspenseful? It's probably just Hans Zimmer, you know, like anytime I listen to Hans Zimmer is like, everything is just instantly dramatic. Okay. If you, if you try to write to yeah. any of his stuff on Spotify, it's just so 
it just makes everything you almost feel like you're moving in slow motion okay. you're thinking about no matter what it is no matter how asinine it becomes like life or death that interstellar music you know mm-hmm. so um, hans zimmer is hans zimmer the director Who uh, is he? hans zimmer did the music, the music i'm okay. assuming because it sounded right. a lot like interstellar and like oh, okay and they i know christopher nolan uses hans zimmer okay a lot if you want to like feel like you're about to cry and mm-hmm. uh you know and get real trembly uh get you a bottle of whiskey and listen to some hans zimmer music scores <laughs> okay all right good to know yeah i've noticed ever since um so i listened to this pod this no agenda podcast and the guy adam curry that does that he is just so hyper aware of the music scores or any kind of sound effects that somebody plays in the background mm-hmm. so for example you know with like news stories and stuff the news will oftentimes just like have a stock clip of a bomb going off and it'll just play it in the background yeah um, just to give you the feel that they're going to talk about war mm-hmm. but it's so funny to analyze what clips they decide to play <laughs> You know, cause it, it makes it obvious that like the news is just like an entertainment production. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's not news. They're playing, you know, stock clips. That would be, <laughs> yeah, that would ruin everything you watch. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like reading. I don't know. I, you can do that with movie scripts too. Like mm-hmm. if you read a lot or write a lot and then you're just watching the movie and you're like, this writer fucking sucks. Yeah. Like, you know, cause you're thinking about the meta, you know, this did the writing. I didn't think sucked in this. I thought felt like it was good writing. I know we had mm-hmm. uh, we had different. Uh, it, it was like two different movies, kind of. Yeah. What did you mean by two different movies? Uh, first half of the movie, I really dug the emphasis on first of all quantum theory and like the paradox being located somewhere in our react. Like we have to deal with paradox in in our quest to understand reality, and mm-hmm. that there's another layer under the visible world. Uh, that we deal with and not only that but there are some people who can see that or and put it put it in a a language that uh, enables us to use it and build things so like there's people like Oppenheimer people like Heisenberg Hmm. or Schrodinger or whoever Einstein that these individuals are like living in two worlds at once and so that drives them, they're a little bit crazy because they're living mm-hmm. in this world of like $34 popcorn and, <laughs> and uh, you know, movie theaters and the sensory experience. But then in their minds, they're experiencing this whole other level of reality. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt like that was the first part of the movie was talking about Oppenheimer doing that in addition to him reading philosophy and mm-hmm. uh, religious scripture and yeah. language. So I felt like that was part one of the movie. Um, and then part two was the, the national security stuff, mm-hmm. the A-bomb stuff. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Definitely two different themes of the movie, for sure. Do you relate? I like, like the first one better. <laughs> yeah, I did too. I like the first one a lot. I mean, yeah. I, I like both of them just because yeah. – uh, like I had some interest, but I feel like you probably had some rela- related a little bit to the first part because you kind of did that whole, you know, it was talking about him at Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oppenheimer goes to Cambridge and then he has his, you know, intense 
uh, academic or intellectual experiences there, and like he's going crazy, like uh, he's suffering from depression. Um, and you kind of had that a little bit, and you when you went to Oxford and did postdoc, and you did a, like one of the most intense scientific things you can do. Yeah, I, I definitely um, related to like one of the quotes where he just talked about being uh, depressed and, and homesick and just in this really highly intellectual world, but um, just not super, um, I don't know, just wasn't feeling great the whole time, mm-hmm. um, for sure. I thought it was, it was also interesting. I, they kind of took a shot at Cambridge, too, didn't they? They were like, mm-hmm. you need to get into a place where you're allowed to uh, think for yourself or something Yeah, like they were that. like, uh, you know, you get away from these beakers and this, you know, yeah. experimental bullshit. You know, if you need a, you need a world of ideas, then right. you need to get out of Cambridge and you need to go. Because he was, he, he was interested in the theory. Yeah. Like, Which is strange, though, because... I'm surprised they singled out Cambridge. I guess that's where he came from. Just who's probably just and with the wrong advisors in Cambridge. But and Cam- Cambridge is like a theoretical world. Cambridge doesn't do experiments. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's. I mean, they do, but it's kind of like Oxford or like, maybe that's just that you know. what uh, quantum mechanics was at that time at Cambridge. Like maybe they were just like but not yeah. it, not with it, and where it was happening was Germany. I guess so. But wasn't Dirac? I'm pretty sure Paul Dirac was at Cambridge. Anyway, I don't know anybody matter, that was. But, I mean, so maybe him. But I, like yeah. when I read that, uh, the history of all those guys, like it's always like Vienna and yeah. Austria and Germany. And I guess that's true. But you know, Cambridge is you know Newton, uh, Charles Darwin. Uh, that's true. The, the people that. Uh, invented DNA Watkins or whatever. Crick and um, Watson. Crick and Watkins. That mm-hmm. was Cambridge. I mean, Cambridge oh, I didn't know is that. like pretty. I mean, I mean, Cambridge is probably more famous than Oxford for having like geniuses, I'd say. Yeah, I feel like my understanding of that reputation is like Cambridge is a little like a, a hair harder to get. It's a little bit like Harvard and Yale. It's like Harvard's got a, a hair more prestige and like. But both are like, you, you, it's not a bad deal to go to Yale. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, I'd say Cambridge is kind of more like Juilliard or something like that. Mm. Cambridge is kind of like the place where, like, if you're, um, you know, if you're a son of whatever, some wealthy finance dude in England, like you go to Oxford, it's only kind of like the weird, super smart theater kids that go to Cambridge um, mm. that just because they're really into the intellectual side of it. They don't really care about the prestige side of it. Like you get to have a bunch of grungy, like, you know, Birkenstocks wearing socks and stuff at Cambridge. Like you don't have that at Oxford, Oxford. Everybody's in a fucking tuxedo. Interesting. Yeah. I got, um, I met a Cambridge. He's a, the head of one of the departments over there. Um, and, he did give an extremely long speech <laughs> uh, that was like he was definitely talking to himself for a while at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, and, oh, I remember. Yeah, yeah, I know you're talking about. Yeah, I want to say, but like, and it, it, very nice person. And I really regret being drunk and saying something like, when it was my turn to talk, I was like, you know, I just really like keeping it simple. <laughs> like fucking drunk asshole at the table. Like, uh, but, but he did talk a long fucking time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I liked, 
let's get back to the movie a little bit, I guess. Yeah. I, I really like the cast. Uh-huh. I love Josh Hartnett was in it. Uh, for those of y'all who, uh, you know, in my generation, <laughs> Josh Hartnett was the guy. Uh, definitely like the kind of like the heartthrob guy, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And then he just disappeared. Mm. Like for a long time, he didn't do anything. And I remember seeing a, uh, a, uh, interview with him and he said something about Hollywood being poisonous mm-hmm. and, uh, and he didn't like it anymore. But he's in this and he's gained a little weight and he looks like Val Kilmer a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I also liked, um, the guy, I don't know his name, but he was the star of Mr. Robot and then he was Freddie Mercury. Uh, he had that small role at the end. Yes, yes, yeah, um, yep. I know exactly who you're talking about. The guy who, yeah, Freddie Mercury guy. Yeah, but in, like, he's like a pretty big time actor, and for him to just take this really minor role, that kind of said to me, like, oh, this, this is one of those movies that, like, big actors just kind of want to be in. Was well, Christopher Nolan. Because it's going to be important. You know? Okay. And, and I yeah. think that role was kind of cool. So we can just go ahead yeah. and lay the spoilers out. Like, that role where he's, like, defending Oppenheimer against the Ivy League piece of shit who yeah. has political aspirations. Yeah. Like that. I could see someone taking a role and being like, I want to, like, embody this symbolic moment for, mm-hmm. you know, for $1.5 million. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I didn't get that. Who's the guy, Strauss? How did he get the position of being... Was he the head of the Advanced Institute of Princeton or just I think on the he was board? the head of Princeton. I think he was the president of Princeton. Okay. And then he okay. they had that institute okay. and they bring Oppenheimer on. Gotcha. And okay. then that's like the magnet. It's Einstein, Gödel, Oppenheimer. Yeah. And for those of y'all who've listened to podcasts before, me and Steve talked about Gödel before. Gödel's in there for like five seconds. Yeah. He's in the woods. They talk about him not liking uh, or being afraid to eat things. <laughs> You know, Cole went to the bathroom and as soon as he left, uh, Kurt Gerdle shows up on screen. <laughs> the second I leave. <laughs> the one guy that I was like, when I sat down the first thing, I was like, hey, did he talk? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. I mean, it was, it was great that they just took the time to uh, present that, you know, yeah. aspect of the Advanced Institute. The that, landscape. Like, Einstein and Gerdle were like good friends there. I think that's awesome that they... Felt that was important enough to include it in the movie. What a crazy fucking time. Yeah. That was. Like, to have all those theories, relativity mm-hmm. theory, then quantum theory, like two world-changing things uh, in yeah. terms of how we look at the physical world. And then, on top of that, the the world wars, mm-hmm. and then the A-bomb. It's like, Jesus. Yeah. Going back to the Cambridge thing, I, it also occurred to me is that, you know, since Cambridge is Newton, you know, it's and Einstein is still kind of like in the Newtonian world of, <clears throat> you know, space de- and time and determinism, cause and effect. Yeah. Space and time. Things are locally like things mm-hmm. make sense, like every effect has a cause kind of stuff. So Cambridge is still in that world. <clears throat> um hmm. what do you mean like but, they're still in that world like like they, they have that like it's like a deterministic paradigm kind of yeah well i mean I, I just was going back to our early conversation about why they were saying that cambridge didn't allow you to to think freely about quantum mechanics and uh, i just that would be like real hair in the soup over there right because einstein 
he kind of represented the old world, right? Like he didn't want to believe in the randomness of that that um, you know quantum theory has in it, right? I don't know if did you, did you follow along that? So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so he was like, God doesn't play dice, kind of thing, right? And, and he tried to disprove. Uh, he's trying to disprove big pieces of quantum mechanics and accidentally yeah. <laughs> gave us entanglement. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, yeah so true, he, yeah. he was trying to show, well, if, if quantum mechanics is true and what Heisenberg and Bohr are saying is true about like um, particles and waves uh, and about causality, then it's the case that if you um, have two, two particles uh, that are a particle and it's antiparticle, and you send them to opposite sides of the universe and you provoke one of them into a particular state of existence. Um, let's say it's positive and negative. I don't remember exactly what the state is. You provoke one of them into that state. The other one will simultaneously change uh, no matter how far apart they are, meaning that there's no space between them, that they're still connected in some invisible way. And uh, Yeah, it violates. Uh, he called it spooky action at a distance yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it's fucking spooky. I did kind of laugh a little bit when Oppenheimer was like, is it particle or is it waves? Guess what? It's both. <laughs> I felt like, yeah, that was like aimed at us a little bit. <laughs> there were a couple of sections that were like, all right, kids, let's yeah. sit around and let, let us give you a little, a little lesson, which is fine. I get it. You got to tell, explain to people a little bit. He did it without I being guess, too, yeah. um, what's that finance movie? Um, Wolf of Wall Street. And it wasn't Wolf of Wall Street, but kind of like that. It was um, the one with, uh, oh, God, Michael Scott from The Office. What's his, the actor's actual name? He plays Michael Scott in The Steve Office. Steve Carell. Steve Carell is in it. Um, the Oh, The Big Short? Yes, The Big Short. Yeah, like, yeah. where every second in The Big Short, they're explaining to us high finance and, like, mm-hmm. so that we can understand the plot. They don't go, they don't go there at all. There's just a couple moments where they're like, hey, dummies. <laughs> yeah here's how here's what we're talking about you know give us a little wink i just i'm just in a, such a different world now with that stuff that it's just like oh it's not that particle waves are mental constructs that we have to make models of it's that's really how it works mm. <laughs> right know? so it's just like that's the whole different conversation it's just more and more obvious is as i just see this over and over again that it's a model. Yeah, I was like, is it particles or is it waves? It's both. <laughs> like, that's that's the shocking thing, not like, it's neither. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> that's fair, too, yeah. I like that better, actually, that it's neither. Like, so what the fuck is it? Like, Yeah, I mean, um, I mean it, in a way, it's, in <clears throat> my view, all of our kind of mathematical understandings of everything are either particles or waves so it's like saying that it's both is just like we're doing the exact same thing we always do (laughs) we're modeling shit with the particles and waves of mathematics right the tools that we got yeah (laughs) shocker (laughs) (laughs) like i mean we we describe um waves in the ocean using like sine waves and stuff right like mm-hmm. sound waves you know we describe that using sines and cosines and tangents and stuff like that so we use ways to describe that but we also know that the ocean water <clears throat> or we don't know but we 
we also have the atomic model, right? Like water is H2O particles. So it's like we've been describing the ocean with a mixture of particles and waves for 200 years. I mean, for forever. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, shocker. Now we're describing the subatomic world with a mixture of particles and waves at the same time. It's, yeah, it's like, like a culture shock. Same thing. Because we don't like, we can't handle that. Something not being certain in this one particular way. And that's something that's both. It's like, yeah. that fucks with our... Um, our uh, our confidence about our foundations in the world. Yeah, I know we're getting too far away from the movie right now, but uh, I've been thinking about uh, Wittgenstein's last book on certainty. Yeah, I like it a lot. About how we like kind of have to have certainty because he presents certain paradoxes that arise if you're not certain. Like for example. In order, if you have a doubt about something, in order to take that doubt seriously, you kind of have to be certain about certain uh, parameters in the doubt. You ha- right to dig into any kind of right. line of inquiry, you have to assume a couple of things. Right, or else, or else the the doubt isn't really comprehensible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I think that's interesting, but I still haven't decided if. My kind of view of everything being a model, um, I don't know if there's certainty there. Because like, if I think of a map in a city, it doesn't really make sense for me to say, am I certain that the map is correct? You know, it's like, well, what do you mean by, like, if there's a wiggle in this road and the map has the road going straight, is the map incorrect? Like the correctness of the map is not really the question, you know, it's like the effectiveness of the map. Yeah. Right. So, so if you just, if I just see like words and language and as like, they're either effective or they're not, Mm -hmm. where would Wittgenstein say that that has, there has to be some sort of certainty there. I, I think, like that even plays really nicely into the movie too, because the the second the whole second half of the movie, he is Oppenheimer's torn right about the morality of what he's done, you know I guess the so. ethical basis yeah. of like he's he has contributed to the death of lots of people, uh-huh. and yet like he was so passionate about saving people first yeah. saving the Jews and then okay well Hitler's already dead but now we have this thing. Okay, well, well, we're saving we're saving American lives um, from an invasion, mm-hmm. and so we're gonna, you know, in the in the home, like the there's a total absence of certainty if you are honest, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't take something as an assumption, if you refuse to do that, then you refuse yourself certainty, and it tears you apart, and that kind of gets into like. A lot of the writing about Wittgenstein on certainty hmm. is about how Wittgenstein's work is a justification of faith, because it's by faith that basically you don't go insane. You just hmm. kind of like, you just agree with yourself to stop somewhere, and you're like, I did what I did, and I did it for the best reasons I could at the time, and yeah, and um, I'm certain that I did my best, or I'm, you know, I don't know you. You stop the bleeding, sort of. I don't know if that uh, has that argument sit with you. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, 
it sort of makes sense. I, I'm still not. I mean, I hear what you're saying, and uh, I think Wittgenstein was very had a lot of faith. You know, he carried around that Bible for a long time, and I think he was kind of a deeply religious person. Um, but I still don't get. I guess I'm thinking more about like myself now, or just right. So I was tempted to say maybe my view that everything is like a map um, in a city. Maybe that analogy is what I'm certain about. Hmm. But yeah. Oh, I would. Yeah, I would say that's definitely a kind of certainty. You act it out as a certainty. I don't know. If right. You're... So like I live it like yeah. I I live it that way. And you talk about it. But way. but it also makes sense to me that. The, the that view itself is also a map so like um that kind of i don't know i go back and forth there you know what i really like is uh who was this guy um how all, go ahead. oh god he, he was he was in the vienna circle but he isn't a guy that's talked about very much the math guy um yeah the math guy the guy, uh, yeah, the, uh, killed himself. No. no. So there was Schlick, and then there was some other dude, Von Mark Mock. Mock. Anyway, I I can't remember his name, but I liked his analogy of um, living, being a philosopher, but also like having this worldview that you're kind of like engaged in, that you kind of like put into practice while you're living or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like being on a ship in the ocean and having to make repairs to the hole without sinking the ship. So like the ship itself, it's functional. It's keeping you afloat. Like that's kind of the worldview that you live by every day, mm-hmm. but you're also like constantly trying to make repairs to it. Yeah. So it's like, you kind of have to believe because it's moving because it's moving it's constant motion. It's like moving right. uh, the, the, analogy david bohm uses about consciousness is like he's trying to cross a stream and he's doing it on stones small stones across this wide stream but the stones are far enough apart that you cannot just hop one and then rest and then hop another because they're small little things and so you have to be in constant motion across the stones you don't get to stop oh interesting and then you get to the other side and then so mm. that life is kind of like that or that boat seems like that you know you're passing yeah. it as you go it's like it's a movement yeah but it's interesting that you have to um i mean i i get the the streams and like the constantly having to move thing but i think with the repairing of the whole is it's like um like let's say i was converting from you know atheism to christianity or something like that like i still have to move i still have to have one of those things with me in the transition mm. you know mm-hmm. like well there, there will be a moment where you have neither but that's what i'm saying there isn't really because you have to send like i don't know about that no but so well i'm just saying i i like the analogy because it, it feels like in order to to get up in order to breathe in order to walk out the door i have to have some sense of something Got i have it. to have well, i was getting back to the wittgenstein certainty thing it's <clears throat> like you can jump from one ship to the other really quickly mm-hmm. but you can't 
not have a ship. But to to be functional, I totally agree with you. Yeah, you have to have one or the other. Like right, because when you're in that space of nothing, you are yeah, f- <laughs> yeah. fucked psychologically. <laughs> yeah, it's hard you're, to get out of bed. Yeah, you can't get out of bed. Right. You can't do anything, and you're and that's like the the history yeah. of pretty much anybody who b- makes breakthroughs uh-huh. in anything creatively, yeah, philosophy, sure. math, whatever, engineering, like they go through the that phase and in the space where there's nothing and they're just kind of floating, they are losing it. Yeah. So nobody sees the shit that they do. Right. They feel all alone and everything. They feel all alone and there's no agreement. You know, we, we talk about agreement a lot. So, and then Oppenheimer kind of passed through a little bit of that, but in the movie. It, Oppenheimer was overall presented as more normal than I. So I read a little bit of the Oppenheimer biography by the same guy, Ray Monk. Yeah, uh, the Wittgenstein guy. The Wittgenstein documentary as well, or okay. biography, I mean. I'm sure it was good. Um, yeah, it was pretty good. I didn't finish it, but he he seemed, in his biographies I've read, he was a lot more strange than I thought he was presented in the movie. He was presented as right, pretty with it, pretty normal, like, Right, kind of charismatic a little bit, having a lot of casual sex. Like, <laughs> yeah, he seemed like a normal like dude, like, guy. Not like writing, like up all night writing poems and stuff. Right, like, like I thought that the one night stand, like when he's meeting the girl and the, at the communist meeting, the yeah. very first time they meet, and then flash forward and they're having sex. I was like, that this guy does not know any scientists. Whoever wrote this doesn't know any scientists. Exactly. Like yeah. They are not going straight to sleep with each other. What they're going to do is they're going to turn into a neurotic mess <laughs> for like three months. They're going to go back and forth, and yeah. like, and then eventually it's going to they're going to do something normal, like have a date. Right. That first night's going to be talking all night. For yep. Sure. <laughs> but I did. I really did appreciate the pairing of symbolically. I love Christopher Nolan the comparing of sex and death um, and power yeah. in that very first scene where they're in bed and she's asking him to read the Bhagavad Gita mm-hmm. in Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. And that he's reading cool. the, the like, I am death. And he's mm-hmm. reading that as she's topless on top of him. And it's like all the, the, the human parts that we are scared of and can barely hold on to mm-hmm. are wrapped up in that scene. Cause he's talking about death. He's reading it from a book of God. Mm-hmm. She is topless on front. You know, it's just like, mm-hmm. there was a lot of flesh put on that project. The Manhattan project. Yeah. I, li- I really like that about the movie. I think that I would have liked if they had more of that Bhagavad Vita, Sanskrit, the mm-hmm. I am death, the, the quotes about Prometheus. I wish they would have had more of that. Yeah. scattered throughout or even at the end um it got very sort of sociological political and it, yeah. it got away from the like existential right which kind of you're talking about yeah it was it was almost like in the first 30 minutes or hour or something i kind of got everything out of it and i was kind of done with it halfway through or something right um, but I mean, yeah, there's obviously other things, too. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. the uh, I guess it, it was cool that the women and the love stories were relevant to the plot. Mm-hmm. A lot of times in movies, it feels like 
they force a love story in they there. They have to force a love story in yeah. there for like general like appeal audio, appeal or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, okay, who told you to try to force this love story in, right. into for this? the plot tension that you need or whatever? <laughs> yeah, into this. Yeah, well, know, it really movie was about the atomic bomb. But this, lo- I mean, the romance in here, it seemed like it was more relevant than most movies. I did. I really loved how she carried his aggression. At the end? Yeah. yeah. His wife, uh, the second wife, I guess, or whatever. Do you have more than one? I can't. But Kitty, in the end, is like how she carries the aggression for him that he refuses to carry. And probably because, well, he's struggling with his aggression the whole time. Like in the, in the beginning, he tries to kill his professor. Mm-hmm. And then backs out and I guess goes to psychoanalysis with it. So he's like trying to figure out how to deal with his anger and aggression. And then he's, you know, selects Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And -hmm. I guess he feels like he's had his time with aggression and he's not going to. So he's martyred himself and he just takes this beating. Yeah. And she, uh, I did, I did appreciate how she was just like on point, like Mm -hmm. defending herself against the, you know, this snake of a lawyer and, and even against Teller a little bit. Teller, I guess, betrayed him a little bit. Yeah. So the true story is that he just tried to kill the professor? Or... I don't know. I don't okay. know. I'm assuming. I mean, it was a big part of the movie. So I'm right. assuming yeah. he really had a moment where he thought about killing or attempted to, and went back on it. Yeah. I, I had heard that, that, too. I just didn't know if it was, like, successful or if or how he backed out of it. But well, even if it's not true. Interesting. Yeah, it's cool symbolically because it's like he's a killer. Yeah, no, I, I think it is true. I think he had like a lot of rage. Um, yeah, yeah, that was interesting. Well, he definitely liked to play the power game, right? Because mm. he voluntarily stayed in that power game for a long time. Even at Princeton, he he continued to be like mm-hmm. play power politics among other scientists yeah. and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, his one his scientific career was up. Right. So it's like he wasn't going to go back to doing math and differential equations and writing results of, you know, theoretical physics anymore. So, like, what was he going to do? Right. You know, like retire and open up a bottle shop. I don't know. Right. Like, yeah. Like, which one's healthier? <laughs> I, <don't know>. I, mean, <laughs> I think that explains, like, just the boredom explains so many things about corruption of power and stuff. It's just that people want to stay in that job because what else are they going to do with their life? That's so true. They're going to sit at home. It's like, no, they want to keep being successful. We'll keep playing (laughs) that. It's so, it's so intoxicating too. Like, especially that what we, what you're watching in that movie is like that whole game of sitting with a bunch of people Uh where there's secrets uh-huh. And we're gonna let you see this, but we're not gonna let other people see this. Yeah, and and there's power and uh-huh. all of that. That is so seductive to yeah. keep playing that game. I think people have a hard time, politicians especially. That's why they never leave Congress. Yeah, they can't. They just like, aside from the, you know, the pathological narcissism. <laughs> well, just... I think that is pathological narcissism when you have a desire for those secrets and that power and stuff and you can't let it go yeah i mean i i I hate it when people are like hey i've got a secret to tell you i know know that some people (laughs) eat that shit up someone comes to me and says like hey i gotta tell you a secret you can't tell anybody i'm like get the fuck away from me (laughs) 
Like, you know how much of a burden that's going to be for me? To have to keep no, I have that to think about not from you? Like, I don't want to know any fucking secrets. Uh, <laughs> like, I hate that shit. <laughs> yeah, man. I got to, I'm, I, I should maybe have that reaction, but I don't. I'm like, somebody's like got a secret. My ears perk up. I'm like, oh, what's this motherfucker about to tell me? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> uh, Secrets but... are, man, everybody's got them. Yeah. Everybody's <clears throat> got them. And that's like, I, that's the kind of the brutal, uh, shitty part of that, like the national security process that they talk about. And I think they did a really good job of talking about that. Like, yeah. they just use personnel investigations and security clearances and the possibility of treason to control people and to control politics. Mm-hmm. And like that shit started like that whole system that we got right now, that whole fucking pony show. What is, what's is the phrase dog and pony show mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with this CIA and the FBI and the department of defense and all that shit starts in that movie, like in the Manhattan project. That's where all mm-hmm. that is like getting its tendrils into First, the Department of Defense, and then they're like, well, we want to keep doing secrets, but we don't want to have, to have these Army and Navy people in. We just want to have mm. secrets. And then what do you get? Intelligence. You get this mm. permanent operational arm of where all the secrets are, and there's infinite money. So then you yeah. have the CIA, and they're not beholden to the military, and they pretend to be beholden to the president, and they do what the fuck they want. The birth of the deep state. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that kind of that movie shows that, really. It really is. It's like if you want to see like how we got to where we got. Oh, you know, it's funny. So I have a shirt that says Deep State University. (laughs) And uh, I wore it. Like, I've worn it, like, downstairs at the bar. And one girl, one of the bartenders, believed me. She was like, oh, Steve, oh, yeah, you went to Deep State? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) Like, you can just go with it. You can just just be like, yeah, I went to Deep State. You. No one will question you. (laughs) It's hilarious. There was no follow-up? You were just like, yeah. Yeah. I did. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow. I can just... I thought people would see the shirt and laugh. <laughs> like, apparently, half the people see the shirt and think it's an actual university. <laughs> Maybe it's... <laughs> uh, yeah, Ron Jeremy went there. <laughs> yeah. It's super deep. It started in the Manhattan, Manhattan Project. Right. And, um, yeah, that's where they created the university and, uh, it's still going today. Oh, man. That's funny. I got, um, I'm kind of dreading it. I guess I'll confess this on the podcast. I got my, uh, I got my RFK t shirts in the mail. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going, uh, I'm going to wear that at some point. I'm just going to prepare myself to have a, a bunch of really awkward conversations. Uh, Nice. I'm gonna maybe I just make a joke out of it. Like, yeah, I got this shirt. I'm well. First of all, I fucking hate science. First and foremost, I hate science. I hate vaccines. I love disease. Mm. Um, I love conspiracy. Have you ever seen the movie Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson? That's like my fucking room. Mm. Uh, you know, with the red thread going through all the ideas. <laughs> like, that's yeah. my house, man. You should come over. Uh, <laughs> you know, just kind of uh, play into. What I already know is coming. It, it was cool how they um, made it a point to put John F. Kennedy. I, I did think that was very cool. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. Uh, JFK was like, I mean, he wrote uh, that really cool book. I think you would like it, Profiles and Courage. Um, and it's kind of cool to see that he was actually doing what he was talking about. Hmm. Um, you know, that he was trying to 
trying to do things that weren't popular that he thought were right and ethically, mm-hmm. you know, at least on politically. Yeah. Know? And and the whole deep state. There's a, dude, there's some wild documentaries. If you if you are not a fan of you know JFK assassination stuff and um, and that whole conspiratorial conversation, mm-hmm. you can watch a uh, different flavor. There's a really cool documentary on the death of Marilyn Monroe, mm. uh, and it talks about the Kennedy brothers, both RFK mm. and JFK, mm. and this whole again, just like you see in the movie Oppenheimer, the whole. Uh, surveillance and obsession over Russian secrets and how Marilyn mm. Monroe kind of got herself in the middle of that by just being a magnet for, mm. for charismatic men. Mm. And she was a, she was an interesting person. Mm. I think okay. it's a cool documentary. It talks about how she could go down the street and like turn, she could just turn something on in her personality and like cars would slow down. Like mm. she, like uh, how she walked or how she looked out at the world. I don't know. Like interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't really have that bug of uh, like. I mean, I assume there was probably some CIA, you know, assassination of Kennedy. I think that's probably like what happened. But I don't really care. <laughs> Doesn't bother you, like emotionally. No, I just. Yeah, I mean, I I just know that the government is full of like super corrupt people mm-hmm. and. Um, I think I'm the same way with aliens, too. It's just like, yeah, they probably exist. Yeah. uh, Yeah, they're probably, like, spying on us. And a lot of that alien stuff is probably true. But, like, I don't really care. What gets you, like, emotionally, (laughs) like, your hair stands up, you're like, I got to know more about that? Money. (laughs) (laughs) You greedy fucking bastard greedy corrupt so that that's like a total misunderstanding of well just um not making money like obviously i could be like doing shit to become rich right now i'm not but just what is money just like philosophically yeah questions about like why why do we need money uh just that kind of stuff that gets Uh, you super and language yeah Money, mm-hmm. language. Um, is it because of the implicate? Is it just money in is, of itself? Is you you like trade and bartering, and this intrigues you, like the history of that, or is it because of its relation to freedom and power? Is that what really interests you? It's more of it like money as a communications channel for um, people telling other people what they want. Like, how do we solve the problem of somebody over here needs something and somebody on the other side of the planet has the solution for it? How do those two come to know about each other? Um, it, uh, the more I look into it, the more it's not through news or advertising or anything like that. It's it's just through the way people set prices on things and like the 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 raising and lowering of prices are, is like this massive communication signal propagating across the planet to tell people what to produce more of and like what to produce less of in order to, you know, meet the needs of people. Um, like, I don't think, I don't think problems really get solved without a monetary communication system of, of desires. Uh, Mm -hmm. 
So it's like, yeah, that just kind of fascinates me. Um, money's almost more important than language in a way in terms of telling other people what we need because you can, you can lie so easily with language. You can be like, Oh, I really want that. And it's just like, okay, how much are you going to pay for it? Okay. So you don't really want it. Uh, or someone can be like, oh, I don't really want that. And then they shell out like several thousand dollars for it. And it's just like, ah, uh, your desires are revealed through your money. Your desires aren't really revealed through your language. So I think that's, or just like betting. I think I've told this story before, but, uh, you know, when I was at Oxford, there was, uh, somebody proposed a system where you could bet on climate data. Is this when, when you were in the room full of climate scientists? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, it's, and it's just like, none of those climate scientists wanted to put any money on their predictions of climate in the future. Wow. But they wanted to say a lot about it, right? Could you say and a little like, bit more about what this like product was where you could put money on? Do you I remember? mean, it was essentially that it was just like, this is a betting market. This is a prediction market. Like, you know, and, and, uh, you know, what will the global average surface temperature be over the month of, or let's say over the whole year of 2025? Will it be greater than or less than the whole year of 2024? And this guy was like, hey, you guys. That's simple. Greater that, or less than last year. Or right, whatever. exactly. And he was like, you guys are the world's experts on this stuff. Um, you can make a killing. You know, like just put a little bit of money on here. And of course, there's like, oh, I'm not a betting person. And there's right. like, there's like this pretend ethics. Uh-huh. And I get that there's something to that. But there's also something to the fact that, like, no skin in the game. No skin in the game. And, like, your, your money really speaks to what you really care about. Right? I mean, like, and it sucks that it's, it sucks that anytime someone says interested in money, people assume someone just means I'm greedy and I just want to make a ton of money. But money is just like an academic study itself to me is just, like, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah, that's but, really that's interesting. The, looking at money as value, you're, it's the way you're you're projecting your valuations, uh, or just or your values on the world. Yeah, exactly. You're telling the other the world what you really care about, and it's a lot stronger voice than language. Because mm-hmm. um, it's about the closest thing to action. Like you can't observe everybody's actions, right? But you can. I mean, that's probably why the so important for yeah uh intelligence to monitor our financial transactions <laughs> yeah they want right. to know what kind of person they're dealing with oh yeah and if you're doing the national security check they're going to look at your banking and they're going to look yeah. at like but also if they want to blackmail you and they want to see like right what does this person really do who do they affiliate with yeah like where their money goes and that's also how you found out the true nature of your government by mm. the way look where that money goes you for know, sure the missing trillions of dollars and uh you know, so while your government with the one hand is telling you how much they care about people and they're all about, you know, compassion mm-hmm. and justice. And then just watch the trillions of dollars flow into a, just a, a couple yeah. of hands and a couple of uh, secret sites. And uh, you see what your government values. Yeah, I mean, people, I mean, I, when I worked for the government and you probably had like the same experience, um, 
Did you notice how much people loved talking about like whether their inflation rate was going to increase for next year's salary or um, little things about adjustments in salary uh, for inflation? Uh, yeah, like so or, you know, when you work for the government or if you work for any corporations, you have all these like HR type of meetings where it's like, you know. How much money do you want to divert to your healthcare savings plan? You know, do you want any money to be taken out and put in a pre-tax Roth IRA? Like, mm-hmm. which fund do you want your 401k put in? You know, and, and if you're a federal employee, your salary automatically adjusts every year for like some inflation rate that they calculate. I mean, it's not a whole lot, but it was so insightful to me to see that this is what government employees talk about. You know, I'm like, Hey, we're launching this satellite and it's going to try to prove like some of Einstein's equations about relativity and stuff. And like nobody fucking cared what the satellite did as much as they cared about what's going to happen to their income next year. Right. Like not a single person. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's like politics too, right? That, that's what I was saying. Like when you were saying about government, it's just like government employees are not interested in the cause they are interested in the money oh that's a huge yes like 100 job security one out of a hundred actually cares about being a public servant or mm-hmm. actually cares about the people like yeah. yeah there are some in there but it is right. like and that's why people are so at, like so naive when they when they think of any organization as like being okay yeah we'll accept some tacit level of corruption but really, it can't be this bad. It can't be this bad because, you know, yeah. this is these are people who are there. We can't say this about our public servants. That's what <laughs> yeah. politicians will say. Spokesmen of these institutions yeah. will say, we're this disrespectful to say this about our right. public servants. They would never. But no, these folks are in there for job security. They got nice houses in Alexandria. Oh, yeah. They are. Oh, yeah. yeah. They got big mortgages. They like to drive, you know, the mm-hmm. new Mercedes or whatever. They got the wife and, the, you know, the vacation. Uh in all the nice beaches up on the northeast and uh yeah dude it's about security yeah securing that six figure and that that steady increase too which you get with each promotion every little three four five year increments the genuine purest ones in there that actually care about their cause like they don't last they'll make it they they leave there's a select few that in my maybe you had a similar experience my my experience was like there's a few there's like five percent right that keep everybody from just losing their fucking minds <laughs> yeah. because it's so bad like the, right. the amount of no get no fucks given mm-hmm. like people tolerating the most insane processes yeah no one caring about the mission whether that's the mission of the mm-hmm. satellites or mm-hmm. whatever intelligence or whatever yeah like nobody really deeply nobody. gives a fuck there's a couple of nerds a couple of nerds and that's it and that's it everybody else is just riding everybody that everybody else like what's my paycheck mm-hmm. yes sir yep but the i've come i've come to be okay with it but just not in government because that natural force of people wanting to make income or whatever in a world that's free of corruption and like in a world that has like honest money um if you're not committing crimes the only way to get rich is to sell something to people. And if you can't really force the people to buy that, then you have to sell them something that they want. So it's like, that actually is a nice mechanism because selling them security or, Oh no, no, no. I no, I was getting out of the government thing. I was just saying like 
the whole greed mechanism that people have when uh, they only really care about their paycheck or whatever. Yeah. That's not a horrible mechanism as long as it's outside of government. You know, it's like, you know, somebody wants to make money. They're like, how do I get rich? It's like, oh, I got to get money from other people. How do I get money from other people? I got to make something that they want. You yeah, know, that, that that's a, that's a great mechanism, you know, but yeah. hitting that now it's just. There's just so many ways to make a ton of money because the system's just kind of corrupt and dishonest and mm-hmm. the monetary system's just broken. There's mm-hmm. there's so many ways of making tons of money without actually providing any product or service that anybody wants. Exactly. And everyone what, – what's happened is over the court – really, you should see this movie for that reason. If you just want to see like how the giant octopus that we have got stuck with in government and the, the money pit began – you can yeah. see this Los Alamos thing getting built with like a bunch of wood sheds yeah. out in the middle yeah. of pretty horse country and ranch country. And then uh, now look at Los Alamos and now yeah. look at not just Los Alamos, how many times we've replicated Los Alamos above ground and below ground mm-hmm. and all over the country, all over the world, mm-hmm. like so much money to play this game. And, and then in that process, there are all these other institutions that have figured out how to leech more money off of it, like that aren't producing much, like contractors, military contractors, yeah. intelligence contractors. I'm sure NASA had a fuck ton of just completely irrelevant contractors or like the, mm-hmm. at least contractors that way overcharged what they were worth. Yeah. You know, like a $100 for a notepad kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all military industrial complex and not really a lot of competition so yeah and there's that and it's in housing too you know they get they get in the housing and urban development and they figure out how to fund how to channel themselves like you know a couple million dollars a year year for a quote you know urban housing and then what do they do with it they they take it pocket the money and they build a little bit of it here and you can't ask questions because Mm -hmm. they also control the justice department and who's going to investigate not not those guys So, and I, I think, you know, the more I study how we left the gold standard or whatever, it seems like a lot of these problems um, happened after we left the gold standard in 1971. I mean, they started before that. Yeah. But before that, they at least had to have... A little limit. Yeah, they had to have the amount of gold somewhere to give to money. They couldn't just print money out of thin air because money had to be tied to gold. Now, when they build another extra layer on Los, Los Alamos, where does that money come from? It's just printed. I mean, it's just inflation. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you know, it's fine for a year or two. And then, like, five, ten years later, that inflation shows up. And the fact that all the houses around Los Alamos went up doubled in value. But it, they didn't double in value. It's just in the inflation that was injected into that economy right. via printing the money and putting it in there. It finally shows up somewhere. And, and you, and you just created a whole, a whole population of people <clears throat> that are now dependent on that economy. Right. Cause they're in nice houses, nice overpriced houses on that yeah. inflated government salary for whatever position they have. Exactly. And they, they are, have to keep it, they keep have it to going. keep the whole thing together. That's exactly yeah. why, by the way they try national security cases mm-hmm. in Alexandria. That's because of the jury pool. Yeah. The jury pool is all contracted into this machine and they are going to the whole, the whole, um, security clearance game that you saw in the later part of the movie. Like they are all, they are 
they are taught that like morning, noon, and night when they go to work. It's mm-hmm. like uh, a normal corporation. You go in, they're like, look, this is the rules of parking. You get like the personnel security speech when you work for government. And it's like, yeah. listen, this is your OPSEC, and this is what you can email, and this is what you're, right. you know, this is green, and this is yellow, and this is red. And, and then if you piss somebody off, you know, um, then they start playing games with that. Like, hmm. and they start revoking your clearance. And they wow. start, and then what is that? That's your money. That's your family. That's your whole. So everybody in that whole fucking, whether you're on a base or you're in DC, hmm. you're, you're tied into the monster and you can't get out. Oh, yeah. You're just driving around DC. Now, when I drive through DC and around DC, I see all of these massive buildings and just all of this wealth, you know? And I just think, like, where did the money come from <laughs> to build all of this shit? Our asses. Like, <laughs> well, I used to think it was taxes, but it's not even taxes anymore. It, it's just that. When they want money, they just click print. Mm-hmm. It's the imperial Rome, and too. Like, it's other yeah. countries, too. You know, pouring yeah. money and influence into that city, just like all over the world. That's the golden city. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's really, it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm optimistic in general because, you know, I, I think Bitcoin um, is going to force everybody to wake up to the fact that printing money um, just causes problems. Like printing money doesn't solve solve problems, just makes the wealth gap enormous. It just makes houses extremely expensive. And if you have a sound monetary system, things tend to work themselves out um, a lot more clearly. That that money as like a global communication system of communicating people's needs and wants and stuff. It's it's clear. Mm-hmm. Like money printing is just noise in that communication channel. Uh, so, but I, I think we're headed back to that world to where governments can't just print whatever money they want because people are going to start to wake up. Yeah. They're just going to see like, Oh wow. Why does my government money continue to lose value against Bitcoin? Like this is just unreal. Like, wow, does this keep continuing to happen? It's because like you can print more government money. You can't print more Bitcoin. Like, it's that simple. Like you're going to see that continue to happen. Um, but yeah, I try to be optimistic. It's, it's just so, it's so easy to be a, like a doomer. Yeah. Yeah. I, try, I get, I'm, this is how I am. I'm a doom, doom and gloom guy, gloom and doom about individual events. Uh-huh. Like when I ascribe causation, mm-hmm. I see something happen in the news. I'm like, Oh, that, this happened and this happened. This is what happened. And I have got some like really insidious conspiratorial, mm. you know, thing. But in the long run, in the long run, I have a bit more of an optimistic view. I try mm-hmm. to about humanity and about yeah. the, 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 where we're going to eventually go in terms of decentralization. And, mm-hmm. and so it kind of depends on what it is. I'm trying to watch my triggers, you know, so they're not triggers. They're like, I'm just turn off the news, man. Yeah. Oh, so I can't do it. I'm sure I need to. I do need to. I keep saying that I do. I don't know if I, I, I am much happier and healthier. Uh, it is a weird complex to have. Like if, if I stop watching it, then I, I won't understand. And then I won't be able to help. It's like help, help, what, help man? What? what do you do? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's an addiction. That's all it is. It's com- totally compulsive. Uh, it's so, there's so much boredom. I mean, there's so many things I do throughout the day just to avoid boredom. 
and like we don't want to admit that because we want to pretend like we're all you know super busy all the time and you know oh if i'm just admitting that i'm bored then you know i can't get out through the day but you know mm-hmm. i can't i can't wash the dishes i can't do laundry i can't do any stupid task without listening to a podcast because i'm fucking bored mm-hmm. like it's, you can't uh, just be with yourself well, I can do like meditation and, and stuff like that when I really try, but you know, that's hard work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I think that's the reason news is so popular is because people need to be entertained constantly. Yeah, I think the higher your anxiety is, and I mean, we could kind of throw a little bit of capitalism in here that, that we are the, the state of the economy, the state of the society encourages encourages this high anxiety state uh, in individuals because everyone is trying to copy the persona of people who are the most successful in a capitalism. And in a capitalism, that tends to be people who are very extroverted, high-energy, competitive people. And so people who are not that temperament try to mirror that temperament, which just gives them anxiety. So we got like a, hmm. that's the way I see it. I think like everybody looks at the, you know, everybody wants to be Steve Jobs or be this person or be that person. And they look at people who are just endowed with a natural energy to work from 6 a.m. to midnight and they just go. And okay, well, that's what I got to do to provide for me and my family. So that's what I'm going to do. And you induce hmm. yourself into a, maybe a rhythm that you're not quite built for. There's a, there's a fine line there because you also need to challenge yourself. We all need to challenge ourselves and, uh, and uh, increase our threshold of hmm. tension and stuff. But I think a lot of our anxiety in Western culture is trying to keep pace with what it, capitalism has done. Uh, so I, I would push back. I wouldn't call that capitalism. Okay, say more. Like I, I don't think the news cycle has anything to do with capitalism. You mean like in principle, capitalism in principle, or like yeah. how the economy actually functions? Well, I think, yeah, the the economy functions uh, via capitalism. Um, well, the news cycle like, plays a, a role in that. Like they'll just blow something up and people will buy it. And it'll be like, that's part of the economy. Well, okay, sure. But that's like a very tiny part of capitalism. I mean, it's like just, yeah, shoes are part of capitalism. But it's not like a big part. It's just, you know, I don't know. News, news stories sell. I mean, Apple phones, so. like, you know, look at commercials, dude. Apple phones, and like, we all fucking got one. You know, like, everybody <laughs> has got Apple products. And that's because of just advertising. Is that that different from news? Like, and advertising is in the news? I wouldn't say that people have Apple phones because of advertising. I'd say people have Apple phones because they're the best product out there. It's optimistic and fair. I'd say that's fair. I mean, Steve Jobs, but it is it just trying to create a beautiful device that people wanted. Like he was like, the, the curve should be like this because people like the feeling of this nerve sensory thing on their hand, like right? That and people did like that. Well, here would be my slight pushback. Then <clears throat> is it the case in a capitalism that the, or at least the one that we're in now, that the best product for people always is the most popular product? Well, no, I mean, it's it's never perfect. Right. It's because all those other for- contending forces we talk about, like manipulation and the market and, like, regulation and also the news. 
Right, exactly. So these are forces that are anti-capitalism. Okay. Well, right. I guess I, right. it's just like a distinction of like, I'm just lumping everything into capitalism that we exist with right now. Yes, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a language misleading. problem. I, I don't, I think that doesn't get us out of it. Okay. Because like, in my view, capitalism is the way out. It helps demonize the system without understanding it, what it's supposed to be or what it. But the system isn't capitalism. Like the system is government media control. Government media control over people's opinions is not capitalism. Okay, it, it, that's something. That's that's more socialism. So what we live with is a corrupted capitalist system. Yeah, and the and in my opinion, the things that people have problems with, like the wealth gap and stuff like that, are because real capitalism is distorted by this crazy money printing thing that the well gap is made a lot worse by that, the fake capital yeah. by the corrupted capitalism yeah exactly it's if if people could only make money by selling other people products and services that they wanted we wouldn't have a huge wealth gap i mean like it drives me crazy when people are like oh look at these athletes making millions of dollars playing sports it's like this dude is working his ass off and he's providing a service that everybody wants. Meanwhile, you have this banker over here that works 10, who makes 10 times more than this athlete and doesn't do shit, but manipulate markets mm. and just like figure out a way to get free money from the government. And like, you're mad at the athlete. Right through, like right. That's who you're mad at, and that's just the thing that you're aware of because of the news cycle and everything. Right. Like you're aware of one and not the other. Yeah, exactly. Because you're intended to be aware of one. You're intended to watch the circus, and that's what you know, yeah. professional sports is. It's this. It's right. the Roman circus. I mean, you look at like the the top one thousand richest men in the world. Do you think you're gonna find any athletes on there? <laughs> no. Like it's it's all bankers. Every single one of them, like bankers. That's wild. Yeah, it's that like, is wild. That's that, the problem. It's I mean, that's where that's where I mean to kind of get back into national security a little bit. That is where um, the s control was grabbed uh, from the military. Mm -hmm. In the so you see the Manhattan Project. Bring us back to the movie. See the Manhattan mm -hmm. Project. You see who's in charge of that? The yeah. military, right? The Defense Department, and then you have folks, the most powerful people in the world, who are bankers the wealthiest people in the world and they're like right. okay should we let rotating presidents insane bodies of congress you know that rotate also every mm -hmm. two to four years and you know the military it's fairly insulated little institutional should they be running really running uh weapons and the flow of money and foreign policy or should the smartest people <laughs> who really know yeah. us us folks in finance and law should we be running it and then you get taken out of the army intelligence but it's not just any intelligence it's the guys that went all to the ivy league schools that mm -hmm. have a background in finance and law and they magically yeah. we, we miracle ourselves the cia and why did i bring that up there was a reason oh you're getting back to the movie a little bit i was but you were saying yeah. something oh well yeah i was just saying it's it's the bankers that are oh right the bankers right yeah i mean e even with that right their plans to do all that stuff that it doesn't work if they don't have a money printer. Ah, yeah. I mean, that's the importance of it. That's the Federal Reserve Act. Right. It enshrines them in power. Right. Exactly. It's like they can decide whatever they want. But if like people actually were like, 
no, I need the Bitcoin to actually show up in my wallet right. before I sell you these weapons, mm-hmm. then they couldn't do it because they'd be like, oh, well, how do we get Bitcoin? Oh, we can't print Bitcoin. Oh, we have to buy Bitcoin from someone. And then they would become poor by trying to buy that Bitcoin and then they wouldn't give that money for the weapons to be traded. Right. Like it, it, it would stop the whole game. It would stop the whole game. That's, that's why it's like, it's so. It's interesting. Like I'm not, people think I'm interested in Bitcoin just because I want to make money. It's like, no, Bitcoin literally solves so many of the social problems in the world because so many of the social problems of the world come from this guy has a money printer. This guy doesn't. It's uh, it will blow your mind. And this will be the last thing I say about that this little area because I'm going down my, getting on my podium. But like, it will blow your mind the rotating door between the Treasury, the mm-hmm. Fed, the oh, SEC, yeah. and the CIA. Oh yeah, it is fucking unreal. Yes, yeah, just... the the rotation. They're just like, all right, bro, you're gonna go here now, and I'm gonna go here. Okay, yeah. and then we're gonna substitute Bobby. We're gonna get him over here, and then I'm gonna go over there, <laughs> and right. then we're gonna, you know, we're gonna make sure. Oh, you see, this is getting prosecuted. Hey, let's put up Joe over there on the bench. Make sure yeah. he's judged, and then you know, it's exactly how the thing goes. It's got to defund the whole thing, man. <laughs> it's the only way out. <laughs> well, just... your, your boy, your your boy Kennedy, Kennedy. Wants, wants to put a uh, dollar on a Bitcoin standard. Whoa. Yeah, he just announced that Interesting. Uh, yesterday. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder how long before this guy gets shot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know, dude. They, I think they have a new strategy now. I think it's, you know, in, in mesh people in legal battles seems be, to be the new, yeah. you know, instead of shoot them. It would be they, too obvious if he yeah, gets killed. It's like, I think they, they realized that things got a little hot, you know, in the 60s. They're like, we just yeah. killed everybody and we can't do that anymore. So we're just going to, you know, drain them of their life savings uh, through mm-hmm. legal battles. Well, we're uh, we're over an hour now. Uh, you want to start uh, wrap, wrapping it up? Uh, I'll say a couple more things about the movie. Okay. Um, I do want to say Matt Damon, I liked a lot as a general. Uh-huh. I thought he was killer. I yeah. thought he like portrayed that character very nicely, like the depth and the the uh, the, the kind of conservative attitude, but it was a conservative attitude with reason. You know, mm-hmm. he was like very protective of the baby. But yeah, he was. He was a good character. Yeah, I liked him a lot. Um, and the main actor, what's his name? Peaky Blinders guy. I feel so bad that I don't know his name. Yeah, he was fantastic. Yeah, he was really good. I knew he was going to be good. Yeah. Um. Who else was in it? That's uh. Oh, uh, Iron Man. Yeah. Yeah. What's his name again? <laughs> It's the worst review of all time. <laughs> uh, the guy from Iron Man uh, was also very good. He played the bad guy. You know, the villain, I thought, like, uh, oh, that was one of the things I wanted to cover is, like, how well the movie represented the entanglement of the Ivy League with the national security state. Like, that right. is exactly how the fuck it is. Like, that guy was the president of Princeton, and that's what he did, and those were his aspirations. Mm-hmm. Like, it is – take that and just sprinkle 70 years of it getting worse on mm-hmm. top, and that is – that's the way it is. Yeah. I liked that one scene in the movie where it was like, um, that maybe they weren't talking about you. Yeah. 
about his ego. Like he just yeah. assumed Einstein and, and right. Oppenheimer were talking about him. Right. And that, that drove that conversation drove this guy's whole thing. His yeah. whole life. And he was totally like, wrong that yeah. they, these guys weren't even talking about him the whole time. 30 years of his, <laughs> and how much of like people's lives are driven by shit like that. Yeah. Especially politicians <laughs> and like, you know, egomaniacs. The hydrogen yeah. bomb thing was interesting. I did not know yeah, the extent know of that. that either. How Oppenheimer kind of, uh, was a, how he turned around. That was interesting. How he was like, okay, I'm pro, I'm pro nuclear, uh, armaments mm-hmm. until he was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. And then he tried to kind of backpedal, but not quite. He didn't apologize. He said, they said he never publicly apologized for anything. Yeah. They just kind of left it complicated. And well, it is kind of, it kind of gets back to our certainty thing. Right. I mean, I was hoping for a little bit more. Like, I feel like they gave it all up in the beginning, right? The Prometheus, the feeling like that he's created the thing that helps man destroy himself. and um, But it never got more complicated than that throughout the whole movie. You know, like... Just like, be, it never went beyond the, the tension of, did he do the wrong thing? Right. It just stayed in that tension the whole movie. Yeah, it just stayed in that tension the whole movie. I kind of relate right. to that though, weirdly. I like, oh sure, because it's just there's no final answer. Like you don't know, nobody knows. Did you do the right thing? It's like, yeah, that's but fair. You, but you did it, yeah, and you are, and you have to live with it. That's awful. Like that's yeah. true for everybody and all of you know all the sh- shit that we do. It's like, okay. I I think it's you know something that people don't really acknowledge very much is that. I mean, it's just so common to say, oh, the atom bomb. I can't believe technology. We use physics to create this atom bomb. And, you know, it's so bad. Look at us. We're just in a constant threat of war now. But um, it's been how long has it been since someone set off a nuclear bomb? Like, knock on wood. It's 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 right. been It's been there was some truth to it. Right? 60. It's been 80 years mm-hmm. since someone's. I mean, it, if we get to 2044... Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know was, if the was, Pakistanis or if the uh, North Koreans or anybody has, has done a test. I don't know. But still... It's been, I mean, it's been a long time. It hasn't been used, right? Right, it hasn't been even, used Even like it's that. been tested. Right, okay, that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah, like, nobody's given the credit to, like, hey, maybe these people that said, like, you know, we're going to use this atom bomb once, and that's going to show the world that it should be never used again. They, they deserve a little bit of credit. I mean, because we've gone 80 years yeah. now where no one's used one. Like, so, yeah. even though we live in fear of it or whatever, well, there's a kind of, there's a case to be made that they were right. There's a case, a pragmatic case to be made for a lot of the shit we've talked about. Like, yeah. even the stuff I'm talking about with, like, not trusting democracy and getting a secret group of permanent party people. Like, mm. I kind of get that <laughs> because the people who get elected are often idiots and the, the democracy is susceptible to to waves of panic one way or the other. And it's like, do yeah. we want that in the nuclear age? You know, do we want to, do we want yeah. people who are like permanent party in there? Just like pulling the strings. I'm not saying I'm not arguing for it. I'm just saying there is a pragmatic argument to be made. Yeah. Um, the older I get, the less of a fan I come of democracy, but it's still, right. not, it's still not clear that there's anything. I mean, obviously the best is to have a, benevolent dictator but even if you get super lucky and have one of those you usually only have it for one generation you know so right that's like yeah yeah like you know like any 
Rome or whatever. Yeah. Um, do, one thing that's really scary that just popped into my mind is, did you know the Pakistanis had a bomb? No, I don't follow any. Most of that stuff. people do not know that, and that's fucking like Pakistan's a scary ass country. Like, <laughs> there's not a lot of stability. There's military mm-hmm. coup, coups on the regular. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like where all the you know militant extremism that we claim to be fighting is like really it sits in Pakistan, like p- protected. They have mm-hmm. nukes. Like hmm. that is a uh, it's not ideal. Yeah. I'm not gonna lose sleep over it. <laughs> <laughs> Just go back to counting your money, Steve. <laughs> counting my money. I haven't counted my money in ages. Uh, I've got so much I don't even count it. <laughs> it's so bad that people just misunderstand money. So bad. I think they, I think you got a healthy view of it as a as a, a vehicle for communication and uh, and. F- you know, freedom, more or less. I think that's good. Yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, I think capitalism is a lot more important than democracy in terms of, like, keeping the peace and stuff like that and progressing. Hmm. Like, Ooh. Forward. That would be... Some would call that... A, some would call that fascism, Steve. But, Why? you know, fascism has to have the... You still need, like, a centralized government... Yeah, uh, control of those corporations of like top corporations. Right. So that's the structure. In my view, the, that's how you should think about this is your problems are problems of centralization. Mm-hmm. The most centralized things are socialism, the media, government, the money printer, banking. The most decentralized things are capitalism. You know, like, like, Capitalism is by far the most decentralizing force we have. Money printing is an extremely centralizing force. You know, if, if you can't print the money from some central place, you don't have all of these things coming down from, from some central place. If, every, if the money is sound, then, like, you might get rich people that pop up because, like, they have a little a little place, a little supply where they can sell stuff to people, but you're going to have a million of those things pop up everywhere. You're not going to have, you can't have somebody control the whole world if they don't have a money printer. Um, yeah. I, I think my only um, thing that I'm thinking about as you're saying this is like, just there's always going to be a lot. I'm, you know, we agree on decentralization and all that jazz, but there's always going to be a bad actor that comes along. And mm. starts to centralize, first of all, just their market, like a Rockefeller, just centralize their corner of the economy. And as soon as you get that, you get the need to organize to stop that. And then you get whether that's a, a branch why, of government. Why wouldn't you just compete? Well, I mean, that's that's what bad actors do. They ensure you can't compete. Like no one like the word is not Rockefeller didn't get there because no one wanted to stop him. He just was too fucking good. He was like the Michael Jordan of stealing your shit. <laughs> and, like, people couldn't stop him. Well, I mean, then that's theft. I mean, that's... Right, but, I mean, that's what happens that's not to capital. capital. That's but not capitalism. What that's happens theft. within that system, like, thieves thieves in the night, they come up and they get lots of power, and then how do you stop the thief? you got to have a, some kind of a branch to get that motherfucker. So, first you said that the media was capitalism and now you're saying that theft is capitalism these are anti-capitalism well they exist in our in our framework right whatever that is what i'm corrupted capitalism but what i'm trying to get you to see like 
if there is a good part and a bad part to that stuff, the bad part is the theft. The good part is capitalism. Like, you can't just say, like, capitalism is just everything. So, like, all the bad shit is capitalism. No. Well, no, here's a better way to put my argument, maybe. Okay. Capitalism has people in it. Right? And if you got people in it, you got thieves. You just do. Like, you, capitalism has people. It has to be composed of people. So then, I mean, people are, like, happy and sad. Like, people have a million things. Does that mean all those things are capitalism? Man, maybe. I don't know. That's no, a deep that's question. what I'm saying. It's like, you need to be, like... You need to know what you mean by capitalism. You can't just say capitalism means boogeyman. Like you, you have to say like how about it means the economically oriented behavior, like all our behaviors that concern trade and and and. But it is the behavior of human beings. So the, even the behavior that concerns trade is got that motivation that we talk about: greed, lust, power, narcissism, all that shit. Okay, so what's the word for buying and selling stuff uh, under free choices? Like, I, I freely choose to buy this service from you, and you freely sell it to me. What's the word for that? Commerce? No, that's capitalism. <laughs> like, theft is not capitalism. Well, that existed before capitalism, though. Freely selling, buying things. That existed before Adam Smith. Adam Smith didn't invent capitalism. Capitalism is how humans have evolved. Like, through- okay. Well, that, that's a cool conversation I need to have with you then. So like yeah. capitalism is, you don't, I'll, I, I, I take capitalism as like the set of ideas that comes out with Adam Smith, okay. you know, writing his wealth okay. of nations. And then we have this system and it's like communism, like communism came out with Marx and, and, but capitalism is a different set of ideas and he just harnesses what's kind of already there, which are markets, but he, he organizes the, the principles of it, and then he sets those ideas loose, and that's capitalism. Yeah, so I feel like you're lumping together government control and capitalism. Like I, I think it, it's a mu- unless you want to just have a different word for it. I mean, you just call it like commerce or trade, like free commerce, free trade. That's all I think capitalism is, and sound money. Um, that's uh, okay. Well, that explains your position a lot better. Okay. Because it just, it, it's just that it's like just yeah. free trade is capitalism right. and nothing, everything that isn't that is not any behaviors outside of free trade, anything that like regulates that or that's the interferes in that. That's the opposite of capitalism. Theft is the opposite of capitalism. Uh, government uh, interfering, banks giving out loans. These are the opposite of capitalism. OK, I understand that position yeah. then. Um, and this is what's wrong. So it's like it's like we all agree on what's wrong. It's just that. Some people use the word capitalism for that. And I'm just saying, like, that's the wrong word. Right. We got to clean up the language game a little bit. Yeah. You, it's the corruption of capitalism that you don't like. But capitalism itself is like the mode of decentralizing the world and like getting people what they need. That's that's how we. I get what survive. you're saying. So Rockefeller, you don't you you think it's an inappropriate description to say that a Rockefeller is taking advantage of a capitalist system and is the product of capitalism also in a way that he is his greed is the product of capitalism and that for you that would be antithetical that the, where does greed sit in the free trade of uh so greed is fine um 
So if someone just wants to make a lot of money, okay, you know, and the only way, you know, if they do that by stealing, then that's wrong. But, but if they, but if they make a lot of money by like freely trading, like they freely sell services to people who freely buy it, mm-hmm. there's no corruption, there's no manip- manip- manipulation, there's no coercion. Okay. Then that's wonderful that we have billionaires that become rich because look at all the needs they met of all of the humans around the world. I mean, like, how much shit did we build with that steel? You know, like, hmm. how, how did that? Would that steel have gotten distributed across the world like so well if you didn't have Rockefeller that was so determined to, to meet the needs of all these people that needed the steel? Uh, but oh, at the same, okay, where does this fit in? And at the same time, he was also, you know, taking advantage of people and was meeting those. He was creating that steel empire with his greed, but also with his theft. So he was creating, sure. he was creating beautiful infrastructure that mm-hmm. we still use today with theft. Yeah. But it's not part of capitalism. That's what you're saying. Right. Well, then the capitalist part of his efforts were good and the theft part of his efforts were bad. <laughs> it's, that, it's, that I want, I can't like <laughs> formulate right now a counter argument in my head, but I hate that you can just say, uh, the parts that were, I don't like or not that thing. And the parts that I do like are the thing. And that's just the way that it is. And like, but you, you haven't, I, I don't have a counter argument. Well, the overall <laughs> thing I would just call human nature. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's I mean the, but we can't just say like we hate human nature. <laughs> I don't know. I can say I, 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 <laughs> I mean, you, but I feel like you know it is it is good to pinpoint and name the things that you don't like. What you don't like is the theft. What you don't like is the manip- manipulation of, right. of money. What you don't like is the centralization. Like those are the things you don't like. But to say you don't like capitalism to me means you don't really understand what you mean by capitalism. Well, how, what if I said this? Entrusting in a system of just free trade mm-hmm. with no regulation, entrusting uh-huh. in that system is entrusting human beings with too much freedom. That there has to be some kind of a balance. You want an authority? Is that what you want? Yes. <laughs> so yes. you're yes. the one that wants the centralization. I do want a little. I do. Okay. I want like, uh, you know, like a government. I want like a government. So I do want a little. I do think there has, because, because yeah. of the human nature. Like that's what, like the whole founders, the right. genius of the founders is that they're talking about we're angels <coughs> and devils at the same time. Yeah. So capitalism doesn't, um, solve like the judicial system and the, the punishment of people for, uh, doing bad things unless you take it all the way as far as well a group of people that live in a common area can like pay to have a judge and can pay to have police to regulate people doing bad things and that's still capitalism because you're just you're just paying for a service well what if you that same community wants to also have a part of government that makes sure there's no i don't know there's no, there's nothing in even approaching theft in the process. And that can be very gray in the process of buying and selling. So like theft could be like, I just, if there's a flood that, that comes, mm-hmm. I just price gouge the fuck out of everybody, uh, in that flood to make a ton of money. Right. And, um, and I'm, what if I say, I think my government should make sure that there's no price gouging during the flood. What do you, what do you say that? So, <clears throat> If you have, 
well, let, let's call it like a, a drought where you're selling bottles of water or something like that. Is that fine? Sure. Okay. Um, what needs to happen is that more bottles of water need to arrive in this community. Right? That's, That's what, one thing that needs to happen. Right. So what happens if a bottle of water goes from $1 to $10 in that community? Um, people who don't have $10 will not get it. Right. But what happens after that? Um, someone says you can sell bottles of water for $10 here or someone's Oh, in that, in the government situation, someone says, well, you can't sell it for 10. You have to, you can only sell it for five. Right. And then no more water shows up. If you do price gouge, if you start selling that bottle of water for $20, two weeks later, bottles of water start coming from fucking everywhere. Like water flows into that fucking place because people can make money off of exactly the, like price gouging is the like hey we have an emergency here you're saying it's a signal in the system exactly like just it's much better than language. if we can if we can hold the tent that see that that's a big ask because what you're asking is for people to hold the tension of watching the poor people not drink any water you got to hold you got to sit with that tension and wait for it and trust the system and just wait wait and then a, yeah. some, a bunch of them might die uh, but capitalism says in the long run, some of those folks are going to die, but the system right. will be better off if you do it this way. The stuff you do to manipulate the price. Woo! Like, God damn. Like, group dynamics is yeah. fucking cold-blooded. It's like, but it, like, mathematically, I'm like, yes, it's I understand better. you, but it's like, yeah. uh, well, yeah. I mean, you see the same thing with, with housing. Like, if you, if the government tries to get involved in building houses for poor people or whatever, you know, it'll work for like a few years and then nobody fucking cares about these structures because there's no private owner of the land. Like the the rent prices can't um, they can't fluctuate normally. They can't fluctuate in a healthy environment because once the government goes in there and starts price fixing just a little bit, shit just breaks down like the whole system just breaks down like because you've you've messed up the communication channel like money is the communication of what people need like some some product service skyrockets in price you know during covid masks skyrocket in price what happens next month all of a sudden we have oh i can make masks we have like 10,000 people noticing the price of masks and be like oh shit i can produce masks and then more masks get produced um you don't have that if you have the, if the government say, no, you can't charge this much for masks. That, like more masks don't get made. Yeah, man. Holding that tension is tough. And that's, that's life in, in general. Like when I'm not, uh, yeah. not, like holding the tension of, uh, of problems for the long term interest of yeah. something is fucking hard. Yeah, it's a good way of saying it. Like a time window. Thing. It just makes you look real cold and callous. It makes you look like you don't care about people. And it's like, it's hard. That's a fucking hard problem. Let's um, For sure. yeah. let's fade out and rank the movie. One okay. ten. Uh, Shit. I, I, don't, I mean, I'm glad I went to see it. What would you rate uh, this podcast on the movie? First of all, when it did, how long did we talk about Oppenheimer? <laughs> <laughs> I think we gave it like thirty minutes of this hour and a half. Was probably it, there wasn't all that much to talk about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not one of my favorite movies. You didn't. All right, one to ten. What do you give it? Uh, 
maybe like a five or something. Damn, God. Yeah. All right. I give it. I give it an eight. I liked it. I liked it. I thought the characters had depth. I liked. uh, I liked the play with reality and sanity in the beginning, and I liked the national security stuff in the end. Yeah, well, the acting was great, so maybe I'll go with like a six. I mean, it's definitely a high quality. And Hans Zimmer, that's who that was. Acting, (laughs) this and script was good. Like, I just wanted more out of it. The vocals of the lead actor, who I cannot remember his name, the Mm -hmm. the guy who played Oppenheimer, the way he did his voice was perfect, Mm -hmm. and he stayed in that vocal the whole time. It was really cool. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah. All right. Well, I gave it an eight. So uh, if you're still, uh, if you're still with us. Thank you, and uh, what's what's the thing I say at the end? I forget. Uh, Fuck it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.
I need no more one. 